My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better by liking this video on YouTube, writing a review on iTunes, or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler has been already uh, a guest on my show once before, uh, after he published the amazing book Abundance that he co-wrote with uh, Peter Diamandis, another interviewee that I previously had on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. And uh, I kind of have lost track for the last uh, year or two of what Stephen was doing uh, and was kind of struggling personally with this problem, which is to say, how do I improve my ability to be in the moment with the people that I'm interviewing, to be in the flow, to be better at not only doing interviews, but doing everything that I do uh, about podcasting and blogging and also the rest of my life. And little did I know that actually Stephen was working on a project that is the best answer that I have seen so far to that question. And his latest book is called The Rise of Superman, a fantastic book that I've been enjoying for the last uh, several days. Uh, and this is the reason why we're here today. So hi, Stephen. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Nice to be here. Fantastic. So, Stephen, uh, let's start, first of all, by sort of introducing yourself to our, to our audience who may have not perhaps seen our first interview. So please tell us who you are and, and what you do in, in, in your own words. Sure. I'm an author and I'm a journalist and I'm the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project, which is an institute that examines ultimate human performance. That's, that's totally fascinating. And, and I also know that uh, you also run a, a, a dog sanctuary. I do. My wife and I co-run Rancho de Chihuahua. It's an animal sanctuary in northern New Mexico. Yeah, which is which is you know a very noble thing that you do, and I thought it's a it's a sort of a worthy feature of your biography that we should mention, uh, especially if, if like me, people are dog lovers or animal lovers in general. Anyway, let's jump into the meat of the matter here, and and by asking you this, what is flow? So. Flow is, uh, technically it's defined as an optimal state of performance, right? It's a state of performance where we feel our best and we perform our best. And I think most people have at least a passing understanding of flow. If you've ever gotten so sucked into a conversation that a whole afternoon vanishes, or you get sucked into a work project and everything else is forgotten, right? Then you've tasted this experience. In flow, our focus gets so intense, so tight, that we lose track of everything else. Action and awareness, the doer and the beer, they start to merge. Our sense of self, our sense of self-consciousness disappears completely. Time dilates. So that means sometimes it slows down and you get that freeze frame effect, like if you're in a car crash. Sometimes it speeds up and five hours will pass by like in five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. That's absolutely fascinating. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, I myself, I used to do martial arts for about four or five year, years. I did um, a bunch of different things, but the, the one that I spent the most time on was Aikido. 
and especially uh, Yaido, was perhaps the moment that I could say that I had very little tiny few seconds of bits and pieces of glimpsing or, or having a, a, a tiny little look into that state of flow. Can, can you tell us about a, a personal experience of yours that you have been in that state yourself? Oh, well, the funniest experience I, I can tell you about is uh, my book about the relationship between humans and animals, Small Furry Prayer. And I, uh, I finished the book, turned it in, turned the first draft in in like April to my editors, early April. Comes back to me a couple of weeks later, and they, the first half of the book they love. They, they've got some notes, they want some changes, but they like it. The second half of the book, like from page 120 on, they can't stand. They want to throw it out and start over, basically. And I think, okay, they've got some good points. I get where they're coming from. I'm going to do this. Even though it was a big rewrite, it was April. The book wasn't due until October. I was fine. I start writing. I redo the first half of the book. It's sort of mid-May. And then I get stuck. And I can't write. And I've never had writer's block before. It's totally foreign to me. I've been writing since I was four years old. I've never gotten stuck. May goes by and I'm stuck. June goes by and I'm stuck. July goes by and I'm stuck. August goes by and I'm still stuck. The book is due in six weeks. I've written nothing. In early September, I go mountain biking for the for downhill mountain biking for the very first time with, with a group of friends. And uh, by the third run, I'm in a deep, deep, deep flow state. I come back from mountain biking. I sit down on my computer. And the short version is two weeks later, the book was done and I'm not sure how. I just dropped into a deep flow state. I stayed there. I mean, I slept in between, but, and I just stayed there for a couple of weeks and wrote the second half of the book in, you know, a shorter time than I've ever seen anything like that happen. And here's what's crazy about it. Turn the whole thing in, right? I, I, and I do it right up to the deadline, right? This close to that, I really, I'm so far gone that I don't even feel like I'm writing the words, right? It feels like somebody else. Turn the book in, back to my editor for the next round of edits. Comes back to me. They have tons of edits through the first half of the book. The second half of the book, which I wrote in a two-week stretch in a flow state, they've got no changes. And the book comes out and it's nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So somebody liked it. Um, but honest to God, the second half of the book, I have no idea who wrote it. It was just written in this deep, deep flow state in this incredibly compressed time. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Wow, that's that's absolutely amazing. And, and you know, as, as a struggling writer myself, I, I can totally sympathize with that and you know that kind of gives me many ideas that I should go back to the things that I used to do so much and that lately because of my scheduling and blogging and podcasting and all of that I haven't been doing because I've always kind of thought that they will be taking me away from what I'm here to do now but based on what you just told me actually it's the exact opposite actually they would help me be better and do better okay so what you just said is, is really wise and really smart, and I, and I want to break it down. Absolutely, a, a let's little. do that, yeah. Okay, so the rise of Superman examines a couple of things, right? It examines the fact that there's 150 years of flow science. Most people only know about the first 120 years, which is the psychology. We've figured out the psychology of flow. We have, know it's 10 defining characteristics. We know three psychological triggers that bring on the state. In the past 20 years, as our brain imaging technology has gotten better and better and better, we've been able to look under the hood, right? Mm -hmm. And we can kind of decode what's going on in all areas of the brain that's producing this state. And that allows us to work backwards to what's precipitating the state. So we now know as a result of all this work that flow has 
17 triggers. So the state is ubiquitous, right? It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And we now know that those initial conditions are 17 what we call flow triggers. These are preconditions that bring on more flow. Mm -hmm. So all of these triggers are about attention. Flow, all these triggers are basically, flow follows focus. So all these triggers are ways of driving attention right into the now, the here and now, and holding it there really strongly. So you talked about all the things you used to do. You used to follow your passion in every direction, right? Right. Why is this important? People always talk about following their passion as if it was this mystical, magical thing. Throw all that nonsense out. The only reason passion is so important is because flow follows focus. And passion, what we feel is important, drives focus into the now. So we may pay way more attention to things we're passionate about. So that's the first thing that you touched on. The second thing is this. The brain is plastic, which is another way of saying the more flow you have, the more flow you have. You are training your brain up on this state, so it crosses over, um, meaning I can go mountain biking and get into flow, and it's going to bleed into my writing. Let me give you another example. Research done at heart. So we know, to back up, one of the things that flow massively amplifies is creativity, really through the roof. In, in research done by my organization, we're seeing reports of creativity at seven times normal. So 700% increases in creativity. There was a recent Australian study that took 40 people, gave them a really difficult brain teaser that you needed a real creative decision making to solve. Nobody can solve it. They induced flow artificially, and we can talk about how later if you want. Absolutely. Induced flow artificially. 23 people solved the problem in record time, right? And the problem needs massive creative problem solving. So you've got this huge boost to creativity. But here's the point to get back to what you were talking about. Research at Harvard found that that heightened creativity outlasts the flow state itself. So flow state itself can only be, can you, often is like an hour, hour and a half tops. That heightened creativity, people are reporting it the day after, sometimes two days after the flow state. So flow in one domain is going to bleed into other domains, right? Also, you're going to train your brain to get into more flow. Because I do a lot of action sports, and these are packed with flow triggers, skiing, surfing, rock climbing, mountain biking, whatever, it is actually, I'm using these sports to train up my ability to get into flow as a writer, as an entrepreneur, doing things where, you know, flow is, is critical to my ability to make a living. So there's a crossover, it bridges the gap. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. There's so many topics here that I want to chase after, but let's try and see if we can do it step by step. So how do we get into flow? That's like one of the most important things, right? How do we get, you already mentioned uh, that uh, test in Australia, and you said that uh, the participants had flow artificially introduced to them. How how do you do it naturally, and how do you do it artificially? Okay, those are both great questions. Naturally, as I pointed out, um, there are 17 flow triggers, right? So the people who are best at this have literally packed their lives with these flow triggers, and these kind of stretch the gamut. There are three psychological triggers, three environmental triggers, 10 social triggers, and the social triggers are different. There's a shared version of flow. It's known as group flow. It's what happens when a group of people get into a flow state together. If you've ever taken part in a great brainstorming session, when everything's off and running, you're totally in the moment, right? That's group flow in action. So there are 10 social triggers that bring on group flow, and then there's one creative trigger. So we're not going to 
cover all of these. And you can, by the way, I have a free slide share that's kind of floating out there called 17 Flow Triggers. Stephen Cotler, you can just find it online. But let's talk about a couple of them, sure. right? The first one, and I, I was talking earlier about Action Adventure Sports. Rise of Superman uses Action Adventure Sport athletes as case studies for a number of reasons, but most importantly, these guys have become better, these men and women have been better at hacking the state of flow than arguably anybody else in the history of the world. And you can see this in the kind of near exponential growth and ultimate human performance that's taken place in action adventure sports over the past 25 years. So what do these athletes rely on and how do they apply to people who say don't want to be an action adventure sport athlete, for example? They rely very heavily on the three environmental triggers. The first of which is high consequences. This is obvious. If you're an action adventure sport athlete, you're in a high consequence, fall, you die environment, it grabs hold of your attention and drives it into the now, right? Mm -hmm. So that's great. And high consequences work across the board. But you, the important thing to know for kind of the average person is doesn't just have to be physical consequences. The brain doesn't actually know the difference between physical consequences, social, con social risk, intellectual risk, creative risk, they all kind of work the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let me let me explain why, because that sounds a little ridiculous to some people. Until about four or five hundred years ago, banishment, meaning you crossed a social taboo, broke a social taboo and got kicked out, was a death sentence. Yes. So we relate to social fear because we're 200,000 year old organisms in our human form, right? We've been evolving over this. We relate to social phobias as much as physical phobias because our life was on the line until about the past 500 years, maybe 300 years, depends if you're a man or a woman and, and, and where you are and whatnot, but, mm -hmm. right? So you can replace these physical consequences with emotional risk, social risk, creative risk, intellectual risk, and it's also very person specific. So, you know, a big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, he's got to paddle into a 50 foot wave to pull this trigger. But if, you know, you're just the shy guy and you want to raise your hand and speak up at the meeting, that's enough to pull the trigger if that's who you are, right? So it's totally dependent on who you are. But a very easy way to produce more flow in your life is to take more risks. Now, what does this tell us, for example, about business? It tells us that Silicon Valley companies, with their fail early, fail off, and fail forward motto, have a huge advantage here. Because if you're going to take risks, you're obviously going to fail. It's not always going to work, right? You're go and you need the space to fail. So companies, entrepreneurs, whatnot, who don't give themselves the space and don't kind of employ rapid experimentation, some of the other things you can do to kind of, you know, mitigate some of the dangers but still take lots of risks are kind of behind the curve here, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just one example, one trigger, kind of as it relates to business. We can go deeper into more triggers if you want, or we can go in a different direction. I thought I'd leave it up to you. Yeah, let, let's let's talk a little bit about what you call the four elements of flow. I think the triggers are numerous and they're all super important, but people can find them. Let's just mention the four elements of flow. You, you mean the flow cycle? Yes, the, exactly. Okay. The process. Yeah, right. Yeah, great place to go because, and, and truthfully, flow triggers are important, as you pointed out, but in 15 years of teaching this material to people, of teaching, teaching people about flow, the most important thing I've found to teach anybody, tell anybody about is the flow cycle. So the old idea that flow or being in the zone or whatever you want to call it, whatever your synonym is, was a binary. It's like a light switch. You're either in the zone or you're out of the zone, right? Turns out that's not the case at all. We now know that flow is a four-stage cycle, right? 
And you can understand these four stages. They function like a map. You can know exactly where you are at any particular time and what to do next, right? So that's the first thing to know. The second thing to know is not all of these stages feel flowy. In fact, a couple of them are the exact opposite. And it's really important to know this and to develop the kind of emotional control and fortitude needed to deal with these difficulties. Because there's a, before we go too deep into the flow cycle, I want to pull out and say one thing. We are talking about massively amplifying human performance, right? But this is not self-help. And it's not self-help for two reasons, and they're on either side of the equation. On the positive side, right, self-help is 5% better, 10% better. It's very small steps, gradual change. That's not flow at all. McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found top executive report being five times as productive in flow as out of flow, right? 500% more productive, in other words. We already talked about 700% more creative. Uh, in studies run by DARPA on learning, they found that snipers in flow learn 200 to 500% faster. Again, huge, huge step functions worth the change. So very different from self-help in that way. That's a good thing, right? Get more, more bang for your buck. The bad news is this is dangerous. This flow, the neurochemicals that underpin flow are very, very addictive. They're the most potent reward drugs the brain can produce. Flow is the only time you get all five of them at once. And if you get a lot of them all of a sudden and then that tap gets shut off, you don't know what you're doing it can be like coming off hard drugs it can it's literally the same feeling right and this is very very problematic for a lot of people there's a lot of depression and suicide in the creative community and one of the reasons is they don't know what they're doing they get into deep deep flow to do these projects they come out of it again and people really start to lose their mind they slip dark deep into depression so you have to know what you're doing it Low happens cycle. very often with olympians after the olympics absolutely very very common Okay, so there are four stages of the flow cycle. The first stage is known as struggle. This is a loading phase. You are loading, then overloading the brain with information, right? If you're an athlete, this is skill acquisition. I'm learning to swing the bat at the ball. As a writer, right, when I'm prepping, this means I'm doing hundreds of interviews, I'm reading hundreds of books, I'm reading hundreds of articles, I'm talking to as many people as I possibly can. I'm building huge vector diagrams of like what my structure is going to look like. And it's totally unpleasant after a while, right? I'm overwhelmed. And you really want to take yourself to the absolute brink of total frustration. And earlier when I talked about emotional control and, and knowledge and whatnot, knowing that you have to get this, this frustration is not the same. It's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? You have to know that. And you have to basically take the point where your brain is overloaded. There's no more it can handle. And then you actually have to take your mind off the problem because you move into the second phase, which is actually relaxation. So what happens in flow under the hood is one of the things that happens is we switch from slower, energy expensive conscious processing over to faster, much more efficient subconscious processing. To do this, you conscious mind has to sort of release the problem and let the subconscious take over. It will do this automatically, but you have to let go. So if you look at, for example, what the struggle phase sort of looks like under the hood, it almost looks a little bit like AC, uh, OC, um, OCD, right? It looks like obsessive consultative disorder in the way the brain is working. You have to break that, that, that loop, get out of that, you relax, you take your mind off the problem. So this means you stop working, you go for a walk, you go for a run, you work out, you build model airplanes, you know, you, you do whatever it is that you do. One thing I will tell you not to do is don't watch television. 
What television does to your brainwaves actually will keep you out of flow. It's not good for this. Um, <laughs> That's movies, very good to know. Are, movies are, are not much better, by the way. Um, it sort of depends on the movie, and it depends kind of on the amount of real estate the movie wants to claim in your brain. If you're talking about big-budget action movies today with millions of explosions where they're taking all the real estate in your brain, really bad. If you're talking about kind of older classic movies where there's more space to think, those can kind of work, but it's still not the best way to do this. But anyways, second stage, relaxation, take your mind off the problem, and that kicks you into the flow state itself. And when I say kicks, I mean it literally. In struggle, neurochemically, you have norepinephrine, norepinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol. The stress hormones, those are rising during struggle. Mm -hmm. When you relax, when your mind comes off the problem, there is a global release of nitric oxide. It's a gases signaling molecule that's everywhere in the body. This drops all the stress hormones out of your body and instead fills the body with dopamine, endorphins, anandamide, serotonin, the positive neurochemicals associated with the flow state itself. So you relax, you slip into the flow state itself, which is the third stage in the struggle. On the back end of the flow state is a fourth stage. It's a recovery stage. The idea here is... There's a bunch of neurochemicals that show up and flow. It's a big reaction in the brain. It takes a lot of energy to produce. Mm -hmm. Those neurochemicals re require certain nutrients, minerals, et cetera, et cetera, to rebuild again. So there's a recovery period on the back end where, where so you go from this incredible, I feel like Superman, to this really dark low, right? And if you, again, don't know this low is coming, you're going to really get stuck. You're going to get really frustrated. And, and it's problematic for two main reasons. The first is we talked about accelerated learning in flow. Well, if you start to get stressed out here, this learning takes place on this fourth stage on the back end. If you get stressed out here and cortisol starts to rise again, it actually blocks the learning. So you're going to get enhanced performance in flow, but the long-term benefit, you're going to shortchange yourself up. Worse, if you get stressed out here and it's really easy to do so because you literally, you go from the biggest high the brain can produce to no more high. It's you know, it's, it's, it's a big, steep drop. If you get stressed out there, you have to move from this recovery phase after your body has recovered back into struggle. So you're never, ever, ever going to be able to rise to the challenge of struggle if you're totally depressed and no longer being Superman. It won't work for you. Mm -hmm. So these are the four stages of flow. There's obviously complicated neurobiology underneath all these stages, which is to say you cannot skip these stages. And by the way, conversely, it answers another question. A lot of people start getting into flow states more frequently. They're like, I want to live here. I want this. I want it always to be on. I always doesn't work that way. You have to go through all these four stages. You have to complete the cycle to move back into flow. So we don't get to live in flow, right? You can sustain it sometimes like I did on and off for about two weeks, sometimes longer on occasion. Um, but you can't, you can't live there because eventually you have to come out, recharge and do all that stuff. And so knowing where you are in the cycle, knowing that there is a cycle, where you are in the cycle and having the emotional control to deal with it, the best thing you can do to start producing more flow in your life. Mm -hmm. That's that's absolutely, absolutely fascinating, Stephen. So uh, let me just roll back the tape here and ask you, how is it and why did you get interested in this topic in the first place? Because there's many people who have been going into flow for thousands of years, let's say martial artists and, and artists in general and uh, poets and you know, probably Shakespeare was in flow when he wrote uh, everything that he wrote. Uh, and I mean, most of them kind of did it, but nobody really thought about how or why they did it. So why did you get interested in this topic? 
Well, I got interested because it's kind of a long story, and I and I and I've told it before. But um, when I was thirty years old, I got Lyme disease. So about sixteen years ago, I had Lyme disease, and I spent about three years in bed. I was very, very, very sick. And by the end of it, uh, the doctors had unfortunately pulled me off drugs because there was nothing else anybody could do for me. They didn't know if I was ever going to get better, and I was functional about 10% of the time. So Lyme gets into your body, it also gets into your brain. So when I was say I was functional 10% of the time, I, I don't just mean that I was physically debilitated, I mean my short-term memory was gone, my long-term memory was gone, I was dyslexic, I couldn't write. I actually couldn't do anything except watch uh, very fast basketball. So like, I was living in LA at the time, the Clippers they were playing a very fast up and down style of basketball, I could watch them play. The Lakers would play plodding slow half court, and I, I would get too confused. By the time they, they were shooting the basketball, I wouldn't remember what was going on. So literally, like, the only – I was reduced to watching basketball. It was horrible. Um, and, you know, by the end of it, I was totally depressed. I was suicidal. I was, you know, only going to be a burden to my friends and my family. There was nothing else anybody could do for me. And I, and I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And I was going to kill myself. And um, in the middle of all these really dark thoughts, at a really dark time, a friend of mine showed up my doorstep and demanded that we go surfing. And it was a ridiculous request, right? I couldn't walk across a room. How the hell was I gonna ride a surfboard? And it had been five years since I had been surfing. I didn't wanna get back in the ocean. And she was insistent and she was a pain in my butt. Wouldn't leave my house, wouldn't leave my house, wouldn't leave my house. After like three hours of it, I was like, all right, you know what, let's go surfing today. What is the worst that can happen? And we went out to like the wimpiest beginner break in the world in Los Angeles called Sunset Beach. She gave me a board the size of a Cadillac. And they walked me out to the break, right? It was a tiny day. Waves were maybe two feet high. Tide was low. It was so crappy that nobody else was out. And they had to help me out to the break because I couldn't even walk out there on my own. And I was out there about 30 seconds. And a wave came. And muscle memory took over. I spun the board around. I paddled a couple times. And I popped up to my feet. And I popped up into a totally different dimension. Totally, totally different. My senses were incredibly heightened. Time and slowed down to a crawl. I felt like I could see out of the back of my head, you know, panoramic vision. And, and the most incredible thing was I felt great. I mean, I felt alive and totally, you know, filled with life for the first time in three years. It was, it was an astounding feeling. And it was so good. I caught a couple more waves that day. And by the time I was done, I was totally broken down. People had to draw it, drive me home. They put me in bed and brought me food for like 14 days because I couldn't walk to my kitchen. And on the 15th day, got back in my car, went back to the ocean, and I did it again. And... <laughs> Over the course of about six months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing, I went from 10% functional to about 80% functional. Right. So the first question was, the hell's going on, right? Surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. And what made this worse is I got a science background. I don't have quasi-mystical experiences, and I certainly don't have them while surfing, right? The thing was ludicrous. Lyme is only fatal if it gets into your brain. And I was certain that the reason I was having these crazy experiences because it was working its way deep into my brain and I was about to die. So it, where all this began was a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me and am I dying? And what I quickly discovered, a couple of things, just so this all makes sense to you, is we talked earlier about the neurochemicals that show up in flow. These neurochemicals do a bunch of other things. One of the things they do is they massively enhance the immune system. All of them boost the immune system. They also reset the nervous system. This is key. Autoimmune conditions are essentially a nervous system gone haywire. So by resetting the nervous system, by calming it down, 
I was giving my body actually the space to heal. I was reforming new neural networks that didn't sort of lead back to illness is, is, is kind of what technically was going on, but I started to get better. The second thing I discovered besides kind of these healing properties um, was that the exact same technology that was sort of helping me go from subpar back to normal was helping normal people go up to Superman. So that's where all of this started. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating story. And I'm so happy I asked that question because now everything makes so much sense. And it's also carrying a lot more weight and credibility, especially if, like you, I'm I'm kind of like a more science-inclined kind of guy. I, I'm very skeptical of any sort of like mystical stuff. And, and things like that really make me... Uh, keep sort of a beginner's mind as, as, uh, well, that was the, I mean, that was the, the best part about it was let's just, since you brought that up, let's just go right at that for a second. Cause okay. uh, the for one of the things that happened when I was out surfing was I started to have these feelings of I'm one with the wave, right? You always hear surfers talk about that. I'm one with the wave, right? Yeah, yeah. Your Buddhists talk about becoming one with the universe and blah, all that stuff. Well, when I first started looking at what the hell is going on, that was that experience, unity, what 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 you, it's it's everywhere in mysticism, right? It's literally all this Huxley called it the perennial philosophy because it underpins every one of our religions and our mystical schools. It's the most woo-woo of woo-woo ideas, right? So it turns out we now know where that comes from and why it comes in flow. In flow, one of the things that happens is large portions of the prefrontal cortex are shutting down called transient hypofrontality. Transient meaning temporary, hypo, H-Y-P-O, it's the opposite of hyper, it means to slow down, to deactivate. Frontality is the prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that houses all your higher cognitive functions. So for example, why does time pass so strangely in a flow state? Because time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex, and as parts of it start to wink out, we can no longer perform the calculation. So as attention gets really, really focused, what happens is the brain trades energy processing, it gives more energy over to attention and less energy to these other brain areas. In deep, deep flow, when you're paying really deep attention or when you're surfing a wave or meditating or something along those lines, right? This moves into the right temporal lobe, a part of their brain that actually helps distinguish self from other. So this is the part of your brain that lets you walk across a room. It helps you navigate. You don't bump into furniture because it says, okay, this is you and this is the not you and that's the chair and don't hit it, right? Deep, deep flow under intense concentration, this portion of the brain shuts down. So we can no longer separate self from other. So when I become one with a wave, that's not just me having some woo-woo nonsense experience. It's actual biological fact, right? It's this part of my brain shutting off that's creating that sensation. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. And it kind of connects very well with one of my previous interviews that I did with uh, Dr. Stuart Hameroff on quantum consciousness, actually, where we were discussing how, you know, the, the presumption would be that when people are having those extra uh, body uh, experiences, say, under the influence of drugs, for example, uh, the brain would be all lit up. And actually what's observed is exactly the opposite. Yeah. Very, very low function. Most of it is dark. Yep. A and yet so, people are experiencing all those things. It's, uh, we now know that all altered states of consciousness, whether you're talking about flow, psychedelic drugs, even schizophrenia, by the way, um, transient hypofrontality, the activation of certain brain structures is the cause. 
different brain structures and different experiences. For example, um, glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Not something that shows up in a flow state, really. But it shows up with trance states and in Pentecostal churches and whatever. What is that? It's the deactivation of the language processing centers in the brain. Hmm. Right? So psychedelics, same thing. You start some of the kind of basic pattern matching stuff and ed recognition. Why does everything swirl in when you're on psychedelics on acid, for example? We've all seen kind of psychedelic artwork because there's edge recognition software in your eyes and it starts malfunctioning and shutting down. So everything bleeds together. Mm -hmm. So now is perhaps the time to go back to the previous question, which we still left a little uh, untouched. And that's the artificial induction of ah, the state okay. of flow. So how did the Australians do it? And what's that say about our ability in the future to get, say, flow in a pill? Okay. So um, the, uh, there, are, there are a number of ways to induce it artificially. What the Australians did was actually use transcranial magnetic stimulation. They induced transient hypofrontality by shooting a giant magnetic pulse into people's prefrontal cortex and just knocking out the whole system, right? Now, let's be clear. Flow is neuroanatomy, these changes, neurochemistry, which we talked about, and neuroelectricity, the brain weight, right? And if you want to map flow in the brain, you need to talk about all three. So one way to induce it artificially is by putting pulses through the prefrontal cortex. You can also use neural feedback. Flow exists on the borderline between alpha waves and theta waves in the brain. You can use neural feedback to bribe the brain in this direction. So uh, the DARPA study, where they use snipers and they studied accelerated learning, they used neural feedback to drive the snipers on the flow. Now, the question of flow and appeal is um, a lot more complicated because the neurochemistry, it's very hard to measure neurochemicals in the brain, right? We mostly have to get at them indirectly through what's in the blood. And um, there's still huge gaping holes about, you know, what comes first, what comes second is neurochemistry, triggers this, triggers this. There's, you know, there's some evidence that the whole chain reaction starts with breath modifying heart rate, which tilts brain waves, which triggers neurochemicals. Wait, breath, did you say? Sorry, breath? Yeah, yeah, yeah there is. There, there Not is, surprised felt, to anyone who does uh, meditation or martial arts or well, yoga. You don't even have to go that far out. You can just go into the literature around attention, right? When you go from kind of the resting state, normal brain activity in the resting state, everything's sort of fired up in your daydream and whatever, to I'm paying attention, I'm, I'm writing now, or I'm doing something, deactivate. Breath slows down, heart rate slows down, and a bunch of networks start to deactivate in the brain. So just simply paying attention does this, right? Which is why, you know, meditation and martial arts, all these things work so well because they're training attention. Mm -hmm. So, so, but, but to answer that question, are we ever going to get flow in a pill? Smart drugs and all? I, what I think is going to become, here's what I think we're going to get. I think we're going to get VR systems. Video games right now, there's a ton of literature that says they create low-grade flow states. Really what they're creating is low-grade dopamine feedback loops, mm -hmm. which shows up in flow, but there's a whole lot more going on. That's today. As we get better, you know, as Oculus Rift 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 shows up, um, we are going to start being able to recruit more and more neurochemicals in the process simply because we talked about 17 flow triggers, right? Video games are built around these same flow triggers. 
Mihai Chick sent me high. His research, his flow research, is now kind of foundational in the video game industry. It's you know, it's what they use to build better games. In fact, they know that the amount of flow a game produces directly correlates to how well it sells. Mm -hmm. Right? It's the marker that they look for. So, and that's only low-grade dopamine loop. As the VR technology comes online, immersion is going to pull a lot more of these flow triggers. Um, more and more and more. These 17 flow triggers are going to be, be, we're going to be able to incorporate more and more of them into the video games. That's going to start producing deeper flow, much bigger chemical reactions. So are we going to get flow in a pill? I doubt it. Well, I don't, I don't doubt it a bit. Sooner or later, yeah, of course, we're going to get flow in a pill. But long before that happens, we're going to get flow in a video game. And, and, and I mean, if the Australians already did that uh, with electromagnetic stimulation, you can have certain helmets for the military, for example, if you're a fighter plane, you're already wearing a, a, well, a helmet. I, I, and you, you know, can... we, work the, the, we work with the, the two companies we work with, our EEG technology at the Flow Genome Project that we work with, the, the neurofeedback system, right? Mm -hmm. It was developed with U.S. Special Forces, right? Yeah, top athletes. And by the way, these EEG systems that we work with are, as of this month right now, both of them are coming out on the market in like, I think the devices are $300. So the the neuro the, the neurotech to create flow at least the, the brain waves of flow it's now available it's now yours for three hundred bucks. What what uh, companies and products are those by the way? Uh, Neurotopia is one of them, and it's a device called Brain Sport, and the other one is Advanced Brain Monitoring in Carlsbad, California, and it's there. Uh, I don't know the name of it. It's they have it's a four channel consumer facing EEG that they're releasing this month. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So those are worth uh, tracking down and, and following. But let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of, we touched a little bit on the breathing and the importance of being in the presence. But, you know, Western culture is all about the future, strategic planning, you know, foresight, uh, etc. I'm a futurist, right? So how do I ever stay in the present if all I'm thinking about is the future? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's a handful of things here. So um, I'm not saying you have, I mean, you know, I wrote abundance. I'm a big fan of long-term vision, right? And big long-term planning. But we talked earlier about flow triggers, right? One of them is known as clear goals. This is a psychological trigger, right? Again, flow follows focus. So the point here is you want attention in the now. When goals are clear, we know what we're doing and we know what to do next. So People, especially especially folks like you, screw this up all the time because I say clear goals and they you skip over the adjective, the clear, you want to jump right to the goals, right? And you start imagining yourself, you know, on the Fortune 500 list, on the Olympic podium, whatever. No, the, the focus is on clarity. You want to know what you're doing and what to do next. This doesn't mean don't set the big goals, chunk them down. So for example, when I write my books, when I sit down in the morning, I never say, I want to write a great book or I want to write a great chapter. I don't even want to write a great page. I want to write a great two sentences, three sentences, maybe a paragraph. That's, I chunk it down very, very clear goals. Doesn't change the fact that I have this huge big goal, but what I focus on little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. And, you know, this is fairly consistent. This, this chunking of, of, of huge goals into, into bite-sized steps seems to be a, a consistent feature of, you know, of, of success. Most successful people have the ability to kind of do both at once. You need the long-term vision to aim towards, 
but you need the clear, tiny chunks of gold, you know, because they drive focus in the now, and they, they tell you what to do, and they produce flow, and flow will help you achieve the bigger goal, and that's the, that's the key thing to remember, right? With you, you can't, you have to, there's a lot of, I, you don't want to take it on faith. That's why I urge people to read Rise of Superman because all the neuroscience is there. So don't take it on faith. But you sort of, you need to take it on faith that by paying attention in the now, you are actually going to get to your big goal faster. Mm -hmm. that's, that's absolutely amazing. I wonder if, if there could be a proper interpretation of that to say that people who, because I've seen, you know, lots of research on the importance of goals, long-term goals and stuff like that. But actually, there's a couple of new books published about how the happiest people and supposedly the most successful ones also didn't actually do that and focused exactly on the presence and exactly in the short term and kind of discovered it step by step as they went. Where do you stand on that? Do we have to do both? I think we have to do both. I mean... You know, okay, let's forget flow for a second. We go back to like Edwin Locke, who pioneered goal setting theory in the 70s. We knew back then that setting what are called high, hard goals, big goals, increases productivity 11 to 25%. That's huge. That's an 11 to 25% gain just by building a frame, a box around what it is that you're doing. Um, but you also, you absolutely, you can't go A to B without. Um, without living in the moment, without flow. We know, you know, there's research going back to the 60s and 70s that shows that the people who have the most flow in their lives are the happiest people on earth. They rate off the charts for life satisfaction. This is one of the most well-established psychological findings we have, right? Mm -hmm. The direct correlation between flow and well-being. Mm -hmm. So flow can show up in the moment, but it also propels you towards the future. And I don't, you know, honestly, I know you were quoting research that shows these people who are living in the moment weren't, you know, setting high art. I don't believe it. I honestly, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it's true. And the reason I don't is because one of the things that flow does um, is not only does it accelerate performance, right? When you're in that moment, when you're in the now and you're in the zone, it, it provides what I call the high perch. It gives you a view of all, it opens the adjacent possible. Like if this is possible for me, Right now, what else is possible? So we see farther into the future and we end up tracking in those directions. So even if initially you were just kind of following your passion and it was driving you into flow, simply the experience of flow is going to force you into this kind of long-term thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yet again, Zen Buddhist monks who are very well known for being in the state of flow uh, one of their mantras uh, is uh, not choosing, not picking, and not planning. Well, let's talk about a couple of things because um, I uh, there are fundamental, fundamental differences between meditation, which is what's putting, and and flow. They are both experiencing altered states of consciousness. They are both living in the now. You're getting transient hypofrontality, but there are different structures in the brain that shut off between meditation and flow. Flow is an action state. It is about Every decision, every action leads effortlessly, fluidly to the next. You're always doing something in flow. Mm -hmm. In meditation, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. It's the exact opposite, right? You're trying to shut all that down. So, But you end up about the same oneness in both cases. Though, okay, so this is going to get fairly tricky. But <laughs> So we used to believe 
peak performance, I'm at my best, flow, this feeling, this feeling, and peak experience, which is oneness, that sensation of unity, we're all the same experience. They're not. They're, they can be, you usually in deep flow, you can get, they all overlap, but you can have one without the other. You can have peak experiences, I'm one with everything, without having flow. Mm -hmm. You can have flow, you know, where peak performance and flow without this unit of feeling. So they're not always, they don't always overlap. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And they seem to, you know, they don't, they, they, they all still have the same kind of profound impacts, but there, there are, when you look under the hood neurobiologically, there are different things going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stephen, time is advancing here. So let me, uh, let me ask you a few more questions quickly here. Now, your book, title is kind of very Nietzschean, The Rise of Superman. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, sort of that, where, where that comes from and if there is any connection to transhumanism whatsoever, because there's a large chunk of my audience who are transhumanists, uh, me also including. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you are, you, I, you know, I wouldn't say it was, it was very Nietzschean because it, the tradition goes way back, right? I mean, like, there's a term hyperanthros, hyperanthropos, um, which means more than man, which dates back to like the fourth century BC. And there's all yeah. these variations. Even the term Ubermensch, that wasn't Nietzsche. It was invented a couple centuries before Nietzsche. Nietzsche barred it. And then, you know, George Bernard Shaw turned it into Superman and blah, blah, blah. So there is this long history of, 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 you know, versions of ourselves that can, you know, that are go far farther than before. I would, you know, is this transhumanism? I don't, I don't know. Um, nor do I think any, I mean, you know, one thing it's not, it's not about, you know, the merger of man and machine at all. Um, this is about kind of using People. Transhumanism is not about the merger of men of machine. Transhumanism is how machines or technology would allow us to overcome our limitations. And isn't that what Superman is all about? Well, yes. And flow. Okay, so here's the only here's the only here's the only quibble I have. Yes, you're right. And here's my only my only question. It's not even a quibble. It's transhuman. I make a distinction between disruptive external technologies and disruptive internal technologies flow is a disruptive internal technology right the radical advance the fact that biotech is moving at five times the speed of moore's law that's a disruptive external technology so oftentimes what i think of when i think of as transhumanism is the impact of external disruptive technologies allowing us to do this if you just want to talk if you're talking if you want to talk about flow as, an, as a technology, and I'm very comfortable doing that, then yes, this absolutely fits right into that framework, and you're totally correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my interpretation is more along that line. And plus, whether you're talking about surfing or martial arts, there's always some kind of maybe crude tool, like the sword is a tool, the bow and arrow, the the the, the, the shoes, the, the surfboard, the, the kite, or the kiteboard, whatever. There's always technology there. You even talk a lot about the importance of the VHS and video making for inducing flow yeah, no, and I'm... going back and watching and breaking down your performance and improving. So I think it's... Yeah, that, if, if that's how you define things, then we're totally in agreement and yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the Flow Genome Project. So the Flow Genome Project is an organization dedicated to kind of advancing flow science and culture. We really, you know, to be super technical, just 
because this is kind of a geeky show. We've got a pretty good handle on flow psychology. We're starting to get a handle on kind of neurobiology. So we've, we've got mind, we're getting the brain. Body is a big mystery. And it's a big mystery that is about to be cracked open because all the kind of smart health apps, et cetera, et cetera, are opening this up. So what we want to do is we want to map psychology onto neurobiology onto physiology, which will sort of produce a heat map of flow. We don't think people get into flow the same way. You and I come in through different on-ramps. We're susceptible to different triggers. We have different genetics, by the way, which will also, you know, impact all sorts of, you know, things in this equation. So it's different from individual to individual. So we don't think by <coughs> creating, by overlaying these three things, we're going to get Oh, this is exactly where flow is. We think we'll get a heat map that will allow everybody, every individual to kind of look at this map and go, ah, this is exactly my on-ramp. This is how I get into this state really, really quickly. So that's what we're doing at the Flow Genome Project. Mm -hmm. We're also, we're, I mean, you know, we have seminars, classes open to the public, you know, that sort of thing too. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So, so that leads me to the next question. What's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? <clears throat> Well, if you want to hear more about Rise of Superman, riseofsupermancut.com. If you want kind of Stephen Kotler in general, stephencotler.com. And if you really want to deep dive into flow, flowgenomeproject.co.co. And uh, on the flowgenomeproject.co site, there is a flow profile that anybody can take. It's free. It's up there. And it tells you, by the way, which on-ramps are probably going to be easiest for you. So if you're looking to get kind of deeper into flow hacking, um, read Rise of Superman and check out the flow diagnostic. Both will help you. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So, Stephen, we are kind of uh, at the end of our interview here. Unfortunately, time flies by so quickly. Uh, so, let me ask you if people were to take a single message, like the most important thing from our conversation today, what would you like that to be? Well, I think that. The real actual point is I, th I don't think most people have any idea what they're actually capable of. That's really what it is. Flow, flow is kind of the doorway to more that most of us seek. And, you know, what's on the other side of that door is often shocking to people. So, you know, I think, you know, I think walking down this path, is, it's the, you know, it's the most fun you could possibly have is the greatest investigation. You have to figure out what you're really capable of. And what you can really offer and bring into this world. To me, that's the most exciting journey. Flow is the door to more. I love that. Stephen Cutler, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah.